pick your people really well and then invest like hell in them, right? And that's whether that's you know, kind of whether that's in your personal life or the people that you work with. I've built my career not so much around the companies I've worked with, but by but around the people that I work with, um, and kind of following those those people from you know from um, from opportunity to opportunity, and really investing in those people is really important. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It is more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit SimmonsPSC.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit Lockton.com for more information. Tomahawk Safety a leading manufacturer of safety gloves ergonomically designed for superior fit, offering best-in-class protection and helping you combat the industry's toughest jobs. Tomahawk is also supporting our frontline healthcare workers by offering isolation gowns, gloves, masks, and other critical medical PPE. For more information, please visit tomahawksafety.com. Range Valuation Services Range is the only oil and gas-focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property, and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit rangevaluationservices.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. We are coming to you live today from the Fletcher Azul Tequila Podcast Studio in Houston, Texas. That is, uh, yeah, that's a mouthful, isn't it? So it's, I love saying it, but it is definitely a mouthful. The second part I get tripped up is my co-host extraordinaire, Dave DeRode. How are you, David? Doing well, man. Doing well. I'm all uh, caffeinated. you uh, jacked as a result up. Of, yeah. Mountain Dew. And- <laughs> like a spider monkey, baby. <laughs> so this is... You know, we're going to air these podcasts over a, a three, four week period, but we've actually done three in one day and we're doing this. You're helping me out because I'm going on vacation. I'm going to Colorado yeah. at the end of the week here and I want to go and turn my phone off and be left alone for two weeks. So I appreciate you doing three in one day. You feel excited for this? Yeah. Excited. Great to have good friends. Yeah, and, uh, it is. It's been a lot of great people. You guys just have a little bit of juice left for me at the end of this long day. Oh, are you kidding me? Hey, First of all, double espressos are 
There you go. The miracle worker. Well, of, then you, and then you can go straight to the tequila afterwards, right? Yeah. Fletch has a little tequila. That's yeah. right. <laughs> the podcast sponsor. <laughs> it's the only tequila we drink. <laughs> yeah, again, we are contractually ob- obligated to... Uh, now, we love Aaron Marquez. He's another guest on the program. He came on and just... I mean, we had so much fun with him. And we actually... It's the only time we've ever had to do... Split one podcast into two. So... This will be. It was really good, and, and what made it even better is, be you know, be one thing if you've got a buddy, you know, and we've probably all been there. You've got a buddy who gets involved in something, and it's like, don't you think it's great? It's awesome, and he's like, man, this sucks. This is terrible. <laughs> These clothes are terrible, or whatever it is they're building. And you know, Aaron comes on and brings us this nice uh, flight of tequila, and it was incredible. Incredible. So incredible that. Uh, uh, our guest and and some of our uh, uh, co-inhabitants of the office uh, drained us out, but we're we have a full shipment coming, coming soon. So uh, well, so you've heard uh, another voice today in the background there, and that is Gabriel Rio. Welcome, Gabriel. Thanks, thanks for having me. Gabriel is the president and chief executive officer of Milestone Environmental Services. Right, right. That's right. Yeah, that we've I've been uh, with Milestone since 2014 and been in the oil field waste business for the last 15 years. Okay. So 2014, so you've actually had a pretty eventful last five, six, six, six years now. Oh, yeah. It's been a roller coaster the whole way through. So we're, we're going to get into all this. I've, we're gonna, so we're, what we're going to do is we're going to talk trash for a little bit, basically. Absolutely. I'm it's all that. about oil field yeah. trash. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever been on a podcast? No, this is my first one. Oh, I like that. Yeah. You can't tell for good or bad or not. I like <laughs> this. <laughs> not, not, I have no idea. You guys are the greatest podcast I've ever been on. Well, that will hold true for the rest did, of your life. Did you pay him to say that <laughs> earlier? Yeah, I did. Okay, okay. So Thank you, uh, David, you know, Gabriel, correct? I do. Okay. I, Gabriel, you and I, we're on a board with, uh, the PISA advisory board with David and I as well. Sure. Uh, I have actually not met you before, so it is very nice to meet you. So a lot of my yeah, questions likewise. today are going to be, uh, like the audience getting to know you. So David, will, he'll lead a lot of the questions, but it's exciting when we have guests that we don't know that I don't know, cause I have legit questions on what does this mean and where did you come from and how did this, how did this impact your career? So I'm excited to have you today. Yeah. I'm really excited to be here guys. I mean, I think I've, I've, um, like I was telling you earlier, I spent uh, a, a week or so, um, about three weeks ago, driving through the Permian Basin, kind of you know, took off from Houston and said, you know what, I got to go see my facilities, uh, you know, the downturn be damned, and I got to get out there. And so spent probably a good 24 hours in the car and spent a lot of that listening to the Oilfield 360 podcast. So you guys have done a really nice job with this. It's Thank been you really very exciting much. to listen to. Thank you. Um, the, you know, listen to the one with Ryan Sitton and Dan Crenshaw and bought Dan's book afterwards. And good book, it's, it's too. A, yeah, it's a, you guys have uh, really brought a lot of a lot of cool conversations to the to the one, mix. One of the other things you mentioned in that same earlier off camera was that you have a biz dev guy who is from Nebraska. I do, yeah. So Sean Gee is our business development guy, and he lives in Wyoming, but he grew up in Nebraska. So I saw your LinkedIn post earlier this week begging for just one listener from one. Nebraska. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna right after this I'm gonna call Sean and say, Sean, you got to have a cousin or somebody that's still down there. The, he grew up in a town of like 300 people, but he's got to know all of them. I right? mean, yeah, one. Yeah, all you need is one. So we we we'll, we'll get you hooked up. In all Nebraska. right, see, all right, I feel better about this already. I forgot, I forgot he was with you. I, I I've known his him for a, for a while. Sean knows everybody. Yeah, man. Sean, yeah. no, that's great. Well, we'll find out if he knows everybody if we get one subscriber from Nebraska. There you go. <laughs> yeah, now yeah, put it out on the line. Really he knows everybody. He's gonna. Yeah. He, he has to make this look good. So Gabriel, we we kind of like to start. Our conversation is just kind of giving our audience a kind of a look into who you are, where you're from, et cetera. So you mind giving us a little background on yourself in terms of where you're from and, and how you got to where you are? I mean, you've got a pretty extensive resume. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so, I mean, I was um, 
born and and born and raised in Texas. I moved around a lot when I was a kid. I uh, kind of grew up around the chemical and environmental industry. My dad worked for Dow Chemical. Um, uh, graduated from the University of Texas. I got a chemical engineering degree, as every dutiful Dow kid does, um, and realized that I didn't want to work in a chemical plant. Um, so after school, I spent a couple of years in oil field consulting. So worked for a small firm called Pervin and Gertz. And then McKinsey called, and so I started working for McKinsey for a couple of years. That means he's really smart, people. No, it's it not just McDonald's. It, this is McKinsey. Josh <laughs> and I maybe could get a yes. job at McK- McDonald's, but not. Yeah, hey, this is this was 1999, so I think the war for talent was really big. So they would they were taking just anybody that would come yeah. in back then. That, that's yeah. the only way I got I in. Still I'm pretty think sure we're on the outside, but that's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were available in '99. Yeah. yeah. So so after um, and then you know, when in 2001, after you know the Houston market kind of collapsed when Enron did. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the McKinsey office got pretty thin too. And I had been on a two-year program, kind of a, a two-year analyst program. So I just got in my, um, got in my truck and got a U-Haul and, and decided to move to New York. So, um, you know, drove up to New York and didn't have a job, um, just figured I'd find something. And, um, it took me about, you know, six or eight months, but then got a job free with UBS, uh, as a chemical analyst, uh, kind of working for, um, doing, uh, equity research for the global chemical industry. Um, and got to learn finance on the job there. I was um, kind of did my didn't go back and get an MBA, but decided to uh, kind of get on the job training between McKinsey and UBS. Um, enjoyed and, and really enjoyed New York. Met my wife there. Um, we got married. She's from Texas too. And then we decided, you know, she really decided that she wanted to come back here. And she was tired of the subways and tired of the crowds, and and uh, and, and decided we needed to move back to Texas. So. Um, I enjoyed um, you know, working for UBS. It was a good education, but really wanted to get my hands dirty and kind of working in equity research. I just felt like I was uh, too far away from the action. So took a job with a um, private equity firm called Three Cities Research that some of my old McKinsey buddies uh, were, um, were helping run. And they bought um, troubled companies. So it was a lower middle market private equity firm. They bought small companies that they felt like had good bones but weren't performing for one reason or another. And they had just bought um, a company called U.S. Liquids of Louisiana. And it was a, a, an oil field waste company with facilities along the Gulf Coast in Louisiana, um, kind of stretching actually all the way from Galveston to, um, to Port Fouchon uh, and, and Venice on the kind of the mouth of the Mississippi River with a couple of facilities in North Louisiana and deep South Texas near the Mexican border. Um, and so I, and I got very involved with that particular company that, that TCR owned. I mean, it was a, it was doing 3 million in EBITDA and we bought it and negative cash flow, And, um, but it had the best network of facilities, the best cost structure and the worst market share. So there's a lot of potential there. So, um, I spent the next, um, the next five or six years really working with the U S liquids management team to turn that business around. Um, kind of got it to the point where it was the number one player in that market out of instead of the number three. Um, got it to about twenty-five million in EBITDA, and then we sold it into um, sold it to Pain and Partners and Tinicum, um, who were putting together the first national platform for oil field waste, and that was R three sixty Environmental Solutions. Um, so um, Troy Thacker was the was the um, partner at Payne and Partners, and he had the brainchild to really put R360 together. He left his firm to be the CEO of the new company that he was forming. And that was a combination of, R360 was really a combination of U.S. Liquids of Louisiana with a uh, business in New Mexico called CRI. 
and um, a couple assets in Wyoming as well. So he he came in to be the CEO, and he convinced me to leave my firm and join the team too. And so I I um, I, I left private equity. What, what world. year are you talking about in this? This is 2010. Okay. Yeah. So this is I started in 2004 with um, with U.S. Liquids of Louisiana and, and with TCR. And then in 2010 is when R360 was created, and then I left to join them. And so, yeah, I, I left to be the, and head, of, the head of business development. Okay. So we knew that there was a, a lot of opportunity in this space. There was nobody that was really addressing oil field waste from a national perspective. There were a lot of smaller regional players. U.S. Liquids was probably the biggest of those. Um, but there was nobody really focused on the sector. So, um, you know, Troy gave me really free reign to go do add on acquisitions to really build that business. And so, um, when you, when, um, when R360 started, um, you know, after, well, including the original couple of deals, you know, we did 11 acquisitions, I think over the course of the next two years, um, added facilities in Oklahoma, added another business in New Mexico, um, built a site in Texas, um, uh, added a great facility uh, through acquisition up in North Dakota, and a couple of others. Um, and then um, you know, that was just kind of a rocket ship of growth from you know, the October, I think, of 2010 through, no, it was July of 2010 through October of, of uh, 2012. We were, we were on the road to, to IPO that business. We had grown it to a, a really nice size. Um, and then, you know, before we could IPO, uh, Waste Connections came in and, and bought it for, you know, just over $1.3 billion. Wow. Uh, so it was a great time. It was a lot That's of a fun. Good run. Yeah. A and it was so. just uh, uh, a paltry so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the, the, that, that business just grew like a weed. And of course, when you're, when everything's growing, you can't do anything wrong. Right. right. We did plenty wrong. It's just that well, we timing was good too. That's why I want to yeah. know what year you were talking about there. Cause price of oil was still at a phenomenal level. And, uh, where right. were you based? We were based in Houston, yeah. Um, but you know, our management team was kind of split up. A lot, a lot of folks were from Louisiana right. and from Texas, and we had a couple guys from. They were out in West Texas, so we were kind of from all over. But you know, Houston was really the home base. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. The you know, oil price was kind of a hundred dollars a barrel ish throughout that whole time period. You know, things were stable and growing quickly, um, so we had a lot of a lot of tailwinds and a lot of good fortune. Um, but um, uh, I just like hearing those stories right now. That sounds fantastic. Right? <laughs> I know. Tailwind and eighty hundred dollar oil. I mean, I remember. I'll never. You know, we were talking about that same time frame, negotiating a contract one time, and I left thinking I'm the smartest guy in the room. Oh, absolutely. We were all geniuses. And then in I look back and I'm like, oh, oil is ninety two dollars a barrel. I guess everybody's pretty smart right now. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I mean, in, in, back in my time at UBS, I spent all my time kind of as an analyst trying to forecast cycles. And it was in the chemical industry, not in the oil industry, but you know, forecasting cycles for the ethylene chain and kind of say, hey, you know, when is capacity coming on and when is it, the margins going to dip and swing? And, and as hard as I've tried in the last several, you know, since I've been in the oil patch, you just cannot see the downturn coming until you're like a month into it. Right. And then it, and then it just drops hard and fast. And I've never been able to, to actually predict it being this close to the action. All seems very, you know, it all seems very easy when you're putting together a spreadsheet from a cubicle in New York. Um, but the reality of the business is you just can't, uh, you, you know, the, the cycles are, uh, uh, are tough to predict. They really are. It's interesting you mentioned that, and I, I agree with that. I think uh, there's a lot of models that are, that are oftentimes created based on um, not really having perspective and experience and, 
and I would even say local knowledge and a and a good pulse of the company. What you you mentioned, you learned a lot. What are, what are some of the things that you learned, or you've learned to date thus far from just seeing? Seems like we're getting tighter cycles with the last with the last dip that we had. Well, man, I mean, it, we're we're getting. It's, it feels like we're getting tighter cycles with bigger amplitude too. Yeah. Um, it's uh, you just have you have to structure your business to be able to withstand more shocks today than you ever have before, right? Um, and I think we you know got better at that through 2015 and, and 16, you know, we started milestone in October of 2014. I mean, yeah. you know, we were, you know, as much as I tried to forecast cycles, you know, oil had come down from 180 and we're like, ah, it'll be okay. Um, that was we, kind of the exact month that the downturn really started to. Yeah. We were, the oil, the rig count peaked three weeks after we started, yeah. after we you know, had just bought our, you know, made our first acquisition and taken on some debt. So, um, timing was not great. Um, it was ADS, right? ADS, yeah. the American Disposal Services, was the, uh, the you know, we, we bought four facilities from that company um, and, and used that brand for probably the first, um, uh, for first year or so mm-hmm. after the acquisition before we, we changed the name. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, um, it's been a wild ride. I mean, we, we've been very conservative since then. About, I mean, we've spent the first two years of our existence just figuring out how to survive downturns because yeah. our 360 experience didn't prepare us for any of that, no. right? Um, so it, it, you know, kind of showed us how to grow and maybe, maybe gave us a little bit of hubris. You know, that, that time period you're talking about October of 14, really to October of maybe 17, right? Or does it 16? That's a 30 month run. Yeah. And you're talking about building your business and getting lean. We had no choice. I mean, yeah. what else? It was just disaster. I would, I, I remember it vividly. It was very tough to be. Absolutely. And, and the, the, one of the challenges was that it had been so good for so long that everybody, including us, they forgot how, you know, what the other side of that really felt like. Um, and we were fortunate when we bought into the business. We bought a, I mean, the ADS was a small family-owned business run by a father and son. It was already super, super lean. Um, so, you know, we needed, we actually had to go the other direction. So what, what we bought, um, back up a little bit, you know, we bought a business that um, had, four facilities, three in the Eagleford and one in the Haynesville. And by, back then we thought the Eagleford was the most defensible play in the oil patch. And I can show you plenty of research from lots of investment banks that told us that and we were <laughs> all wrong. Um, but um, you know, they, they had these facilities and a proprietary design to be able to manage a segment of the oil field waste stream that was hard for everybody else to manage. R360 had, uh, we had injection wells and we had landfills. Um, we could manage dry solids really easily. We could manage kind of quote unquote clean fluids that, you know, pretty easily, but the stuff that was in the middle, you know, those wet solids or those really, really dirty fluids were very expensive for us to handle because you can't just put them straight in a landfill. ADS had a really elegant solution to be able to manage those waste streams efficiently and cheaply, um, that I really liked. So we bought those four facilities and that know-how from ADS. And then ran straight in, straight headlong into a downturn. Um, the plan was to kind of take their approach and then just start popping out new facilities. So we took the next, um, we took the next, uh, you know, really year and a half to redesign. You know, to say, look, let's operate what we've got. Let's see what works and what doesn't. You now there were, um, uh, you know, and kind of going along with all the challenges of integrating a company and kind of, you know, establishing a kind of corporate function and making this business scalable. All of that was really adding cost 
in a time period when, you know, you needed to be pulling cost out. Um, so, you know, I was very fortunate to have investors that understood the oil patch and understood kind of what we were trying to build long term and be able to react to that. So choosing our partners well was everything during that time frame. I want to want to talk a bit, little bit about that and some of the some of the other members of your team that I think have been critical and helpful to you guys yeah. in building the company you've built up. But just for some of our listeners that may not be necessarily familiar with with waste streams that are associated with the you know production of oil and gas, can you give us a quick high level overview of sure. the type of waste and what that comes from the you know yeah. drilling fluids so when and you're, cuttings? So you, waste is generated through every segment of drilling, completion, and production of oil and gas wells. When you drill a well, um, you've got cuttings. Which cuttings is the dirt and the rock shavings that's coming out of the hole that you're drilling, right? Um, you also have drilling fluids. You know, you have water-based mud and oil-based mud. Drilling fluids are used to lubricate the drill bit, to keep the integrity of the hole when you're drilling so it doesn't cave in on you. And they're also um, used to convey those cuttings from the bottom of the well where the drill bit is up to the surface. Um, that stuff is, um, you know, drilling fluids are contaminated with, um, there, there's different chemistry that they use in, in drilling fluids, but generally it's either water-based or oil-based, and it's contaminated with um, salts and it's contaminated with oil. And so when that comes up out of the well as you're drilling, um, you know, they, they run it over a shaker to separate the cuttings from the drilling fluids, and they reuse that drilling fluid as much as they can. But then it gets to a point where it's just too dirty to, um, to have the right technical characteristics when they're drilling, and so it's got to be disposed of. Um, and then when you complete a well, you know, when you're uh, using fracking techniques today, you're jamming a lot of water and a lot of sand with some, with some chemical additives into the well bore under pressure um, to, to fracture the shale that you're, that you're trying to produce from, and then a portion of that flows back. And so that completion fluid or flow back um, is, it needs, to be, um, needs to be disposed of. And when you produce a well, you've got production water um, that, uh, that comes up, uh, which is um, oily and salty. And then you've also got um, tank bottoms that accumulate in the bottom of production tanks, that sludge that builds up over time in the bottom of those tanks. Those have to be cleaned out, and those have to be um, managed properly too. And then you also have contaminated soil. So um, you know, if you if a tank leaks, pipeline leaks, there's a spill. You know that stuff's got to get cleaned up. Um, you know that stuff's got that stuff's um, all oil field waste as well. So um, and for oil field waste, it's generally salty. It's generally soil that's contaminated with salt and hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. And it can be any you know, from a liquid to solid spectrum. It can be you can have produced water that's, you know, as clear as that bottle of Ozarka. I mean, you can have, um, you know, oil-based mud is, you know, kind of, you have very sludgy stuff that's kind of halfway in between solid and liquid, and you can have really dry solids on the other side. So um, it's all regulated on a state level because you know, oil field right. waste was specifically exempted from hazardous designation in RICRA um, in, the, um, in the 70s. And so it's all regulated on a state level. So you have different rules in every state about how to manage those different waste streams. Um, in Texas, uh, where, where we operate today, we, we operate in the Permian. and We take waste from Texas and New Mexico mm-hmm. primarily. New Mexico doesn't allow, um, well, Texas will allow ENP operators to dispose of that waste at the drill site if they choose to. So you know, they can put in what's called a reserve pit. Um, and they, which is a kind of a hole that's behind the drilling rig where they can, you know, just let that waste go into it and they kind of will cycle through that reserve pit. 
They can also take that and they can bury that waste in the reserve pit if they choose to. Not a best practice, but it still happens a lot in the state of Texas. They can also take those, um, those waste streams and they can use a process called land farming, which really just means taking it and spreading it thinly on the ranch or the, um, or the farm where they're operating with the idea that if you spread it thinly enough, it's not going to hurt anything. Um, again, not a best practice, but still, still common practice, um, in, particularly in Texas and Oklahoma. In New Mexico um, and several other states, that's, you know, the on-site disposal is not allowed. And so they have what they call kind of closed loop drilling that um, where all that stuff, it can't touch the ground. It's got to be contained and all of it's got to go off to third party disposal. So I've got a question for you. Um, just kind of looking at some of the numbers and you talk about October 14 yeah. getting started. And what are we in now? I mean, 2020 could be four years long. I don't even know what we're in July of right. 2020. Okay. So we're four years into 2020. <laughs> my, the best meme I saw this entire uh, downturn was April was a long year. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. 2020 has been a long decade. It, it has. <laughs> what was the other one you were talking about today? Can't we go back to? Oh yeah. Uh, Can we get back to the fun part of the COVID with the Tiger King, uh, Tiger and, King and PPP payments? Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I've got I've got a question well, in regard. To, well, hang on. So okay. the, the timing of it, I'm I'm curious just from an entrepreneur uh, standpoint. You go October 14 to now. That's been an eventful yeah. six years, right? You. How do you feel mentally, physically, I mean, quite honestly, emotionally today for what you are looking at right now is a very difficult next 12 months, 18, 20, whatever the number is, right? Knowing what you've just gone through, how, how, what's your mindset like right now? That's a great question. I mean, I think it, um, and uh, it depends on the day you ask, right? Oh, <laughs> <fair enough. laughs> what day it, is it? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, July. It, it's July. Uh, no, I mean, I think there's a lot of, still a lot of potential in this business uh, going forward. Um, there really is. Um, it has, we have been able to accomplish a heck of a lot at Milestone through really challenging times over the last six years. And, you know, we've got some plans to diversify our business and take it in some different directions going forward that I'm excited about. I really think the milestone's got a lot of legs and a lot of a lot of different ways that it can grow. Um, you know, we developed a heck of a lot of cost discipline um, and 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 uh, just capital discipline and how we deploy capital and how we um, how we manage our business since we were really formed in that crucible of 2015 and 16. So to be honest, it feels like pretty familiar territory. The playbook's not as fun right now, right? I mean, it's. Yeah, it's it's a lot more fun where you can just say, yeah, we just added three more facilities this year, and you know we're adding two more next year, and um, and and everything's blowing and growing, and and we're hiring people. That's all. Uh, that's more fun mm -hmm. for sure. You know, the last several months have been all about kind of cutting costs out of the business. You know, we've had to you know cut our workforce almost in half, uh, which has not been fun. Um, but, you know, our core team is really focused on kind of taking our business through the next steps, and I'm confident we can get there. Yeah. So. You know, it'll be, it'll be nice when we feel like this is a little, you know, this stuff is a little bit in the rear view, but you know, right now you just kind of got to find your Zen and, Oof. and, uh, and wait. Um, I was hoping you and then, wouldn't uh, say that because that's, that's what it feels like. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. And the men, you know, we've had a couple of guests and honestly, just David and I are partners and colleagues in the business as well. And I, I, I rely more on friends, partners, colleagues, coworkers than I ever have. Yeah. Like. Just let's keep pushing. Let's keep being positive because it the game. That's what great we've seen. The game book, uh, the game plan isn't as fun. It, and it is a matter of keeping your head, staying calm. And uh, so I'm just 
I'm encouraged to hear you say that because I like to hear other people just choking this one down as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's part of it where you just kind of have to say, look, we know what to do. Yeah. Let's you know get get the job done, and and we've just kind of got to be patient. Um, during this time, um, and not kind of hurry and you know try to try to do things just for the sake of staying busy. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the challenges though of COVID and kind of all this you know this working from home and quarantine is, you know, it becomes harder to rely on you know, to have those people around you that kind of lift you up, right? Yeah. And so that's one of the challenges we're always we're you know we're always working on as a team is how do we how do we balance keeping people safe on one hand and allowing people to work from home because, you know, that's the right thing to do in a lot of instances, but you still have to kind of keep the team together mm -hmm. and you had still got to be talking. You still got to keep everybody motivated. Um, it's a challenge right you, now. You know, you're the president and CEO. So yeah. culture is ultimately on your shoulders is, but is that your role or do you have like a, a culture guy or girl? I mean, how, how does culture, yeah. how's it established within the company? I mean, to uh, no, we don't have a culture guy or, or girl, but um, you know, we're we're a pretty small company in terms of number of employees. At the end of the day, I mean, we've got about a hundred, a little over a hundred people, um, and uh, you know, I think our culture has kind of grown organically over time. We really value our employees. Um, a lot of the the team members at Milestone have worked together for a very long time. So even though Milestone's only been together since two thousand fourteen, um, you know, I've got. People, like our, um, my head of operations and I have worked together since 2006. You know, we've been, you spent 14 years together. Um, my head of HR, you know, recently retired. And, you know, she also started working with, for me in 2006. So I've got people that have been with me um, through U.S. Liquids of Louisiana and then R360. You know, Frank Shagaman is yep. my, my CFO. I know you know him well. Um, you know, he was our CFO at R360 and he's with us now. We've got a we've got a long history and a long trust that we've built up you know, together, um, and you know so it's kind of created a, a really you know it's a it's a culture where we we know each other we trust each other to do the right things. I don't have to give people a lot of instructions day to day on how to get their jobs done. They just know because we've been doing it together for so long, um, and so you know it 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 very naturally has become a very collaborative and, uh, and kind of trusting kind of family type of environment. You, yeah. You were talking about the ESG before. <clears throat> yeah. And I mean, it, it almost sounds that that was that part of the conversation sounds a lot like what you were talking about beforehand with just how it is through the company. The right. Yeah. I mean, so you know, our business at the, at its core, um, you know, our whole industry exists to mitigate the environmental impact of the oil field. Right. And, and one of the things that you know, I think is really important in your career, whether you're in, you know, whether you're in media or you're in you know, the oil field or you're in retail, right, you got to find meaning in what you do. Um, and for us, that meaning is all about mitigating that environmental impact of the oil field. It's a um, and, uh, you know, and, and we make the world better by what we do and providing the services that we provide. So, you know, I think uh, it's interesting. You know, it's been we've been happy to see actually over the last um, over the last year or so, that ESG has really kind of tipped over from something that's been kind of a um, you know something that people talk about on the side to something that is is front and center at least for the investment community and senior management teams. Um, I kind of equate it to the environmental focus in the oil field to kind of where safety was about 15 years ago. It's still it, it is front and center for management teams in the energy patch. It's front and center for investors. Um, when you get out into the field, it, you know, it hasn't necessarily, you know, percolated all the way through these, some of these organizations. If you're talking to a drilling superintendent or a company man, they might not have the same, same point of view 
as um, you know, as the as as um, as a CEO of Parsley does. Um, but that's going to change over time. So we've been pleased to see that that happen. I think it's going to cause, as you know, started the Energy ESG Council to yeah. bring uh, all the sectors together because everybody needs to get on the same page. Um, but we were talking about this earlier with Wayne Richards, um, CEO at GR Energy Services and chairman of the board for distribution now. And, uh, you know, it's really a mindset <clears throat> and it's common sense. And if you really think about what I think the investment community has been kind of asking about and pushing for over the years, when you link all those elements together, those attributes together, and, and you're monitoring the progress and, and you build in this this model for awareness and continuous improvement, you really drive efficiency, which should drive profitability and right. thus sustainability in the business. And so I think it's been interesting watching you guys when you started your company and the struggles you've, you've been through given the dynamics of the market and everything, you know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the market to turn because you, you built a business that has survived and, and I would say thrived as best as a business can in, in this environment. And we do know that, that, the you know, demand will turn at sure. some point because one of the other things we were talking about with, with Wesley Hunt earlier is the fact that uh, demand is, is certainly out there, maybe muted just temporarily right now, but it is definitely going to come up. Yep. So it'll be exciting to see how planning in, in game planning uh, for this environment we've, we've been in or are in will work for you guys when, when some of the pressure is, is taken off. A quick word from our sponsors, and then we're right back to the show. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we have assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit prang.com. Daniel Energy Partners, in-basin research you can trust. A leading provider of U.S. oil field research known for its original boots-on-the-ground research approach, as well as its famous barbecue events. Daniel Energy Partners utilizes both its extensive network of top oil field professionals and frequent in-basin field tours to provide real-time market intelligence. Visit DanielEP.com for more information. Galtway Marketing. Answer this question. What makes your company different? You have seven seconds to catch a customer's attention. Galtway Marketing can build your brand and craft your message for maximum impact across all your marketing efforts. Visit galtwaymarketing.com slash 0360 to bring your company into the 21st century. Thank you to our sponsors. And now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, I think... Over, when is that going to be, yeah. Gabriel? Please tell us. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I mean, I, I, like I said, I could I could give you a date, but I'd be wrong. That's the yeah. first thing I learned when I was forecasting cycles, you know, early on as an analyst. Analysts can give you all the forecasts and predictions in the world, and they'll either tell you one of two things. They'll either tell you forecasts are always wrong, or if they've got a little more hubris, they'll say, I'm always going to be right. It's just a question of when. Yeah. <laughs> so if you go back and listen like to the weather one of the podcasts, there's... Uh, Zach Lee or not uh yeah, Zach Lee came on. Yeah. And he's great. Yeah. Very sharp guy. 
you know, made, made a lot of money, very successful in how he's done forecasting. But he, he had, we had an audience behind the screen when he was here and, you know, we got a couple of young guys and, and all of a sudden he says something to the effect of, yeah, in 30 months. And I watched everybody just walk out of the room like, who has time to wait for th- I mean, they just. <laughs> I think that's how the rest of our tequila got drank. It, yeah, it was a right. pretty tough day. <laughs> yeah, they left quickly. So, I mean, I, I, I'm joking about forecasting, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 might, it might be a while. I mean, but, you know, we, over the last several years, we've built the most robust network of oil field waste um, disposal capacity in the Permian Basin. I mean, we are, you know, we're, we're ahead of waste management. We're ahead of Republic. Um, we're head of uh, the, the guys at R360. We've built, we've built the biggest network out there. Um, and what we've seen, you know, we, we talked about how um, you know, operators still have the option of burying their cuttings on site. I mean, I kind of equate that to you know, burying your trash in your backyard. It's not the best practice. You might be able to get away with it, um, but it might, might be legal, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And these more sophisticated operators get that. Because they're, they know that they're going to be owning those assets and responsible for that lease, not just this year and next year, but 20 years from now. If, um, you know, but the smaller operators that might, might be just in the business to flip their acreage, right, um, they, you know, they, they don't have the same long-term view. I'm actually shocked that that's legal, yeah, just to be it, honest with you. As I'm listening, I didn't realize that they could do that. Yeah, well, in a lot of states they can't. In Texas, it's uh, in Texas, it's it, there's and there's really not much push from the legislature or from the Railroad Commission to move off Railroad of that Commission. yet. Yeah. Um, I need to talk to Ryan about that. Yeah, you guys can get him back in that seat. We that, can. We can. We can talk about it. Um, but I'd love to talk to you. Unfortunately, the, he's not going to be there much. I, I know. He's unfortunate. He's a sharp guy, right? He's I mean, very sharp, and you know, we. It's nice to bring an engineering mindset and like actual technical knowledge. Or how about energy? Right. And new ideas and right. instead of. You know, a financial planner from East Texas is our commissioner. Uh, it's just, you know, I'm gonna, probably David's going to edit me out for saying that because I just I wanted to go on a tangent when uh, Ryan was here and I had to choke it down. But you know, I, I, it just annoys me to no end to have sure. that type of mentality at the helm of really the, one of the most important agencies in our entire country mm-hmm. that's hidden behind a name called the Texas Railroad Commission. I understand right. why they want it hidden. I hate to say that, but uh, that's in quotes, and it's just. To lose a guy like Ryan Sitton, and I look, I'm I'm not necessarily overly pro Ryan Sitton or, or anti Sitton or anti Wayne Christian, Christensen, whatever his name is. It's just you can't lose those type of ideas at this time in our industries. Right. Well, hopefully Ryan will can you know continue to be involved and his voice will continue to be heard. So um, I, I, I I'm confident that Ryan Sitton is not going to is not going to go quietly into the night. Uh, so I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that we'll continue to hear from him, and his ideas will still be out there. But I think the I think there is a growing awareness. Some of it is based off a lot of misinformation, but I do think there is going to be a push, whether the regulators are involved or not. I think yeah. the the consumers, the suppliers, the 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 investors, uh, the banks are going to force some of this on there, whether it's regardless or not. Yep. As it relates to flaring, as it relates to oil field waste, water usage, et cetera. So I think we'll get there. It's just like, you know, patience is somewhat of a virtue, but sometimes sure. you can't be that patient. So uh <laughs> we'll see what see what happens. One one question I wanted to ask though, which I think would be helpful to some people, you know, obviously one of your your financial sponsors, Intervale Capital. Yeah. And uh, you you worked with them as an operating partner, and then you know found ADS and and you know ultimately created Milestone. But 
what caused you to choose, say, Intervail versus some of the other other funds yeah. that are out there that were focused on the services sector? Yeah. So, um, well, I so we had come from. I had just come out of R360. R360 had been owned by a couple of private equity firms. They were very smart, um, and uh, and they they were generalists. They invested across a wide variety of industries. Um, and, um, you know, we were very fortunate during that time that, like you said, everything was up and to the right between 2010 and 2012. Um, and then R360 was bought by Waste Connections. You know, Waste mm -hmm. Connections uh, is a great company there, but they're a municipal solid waste company. They're a garbage business. And a garbage business is effectively a utility, right? It has a fixed top line that maybe varies half a percent a year um, and grows a little slower than GDP absent acquisitions. Um, and then they focus all their attention on um, on managing costs because that's how you really improve margins over time in a business like that. In the oil patch, I mean, we have to go out and generate our revenue from zero every day. And so you got to spend a lot more energy on serving your customers. And customer service has to be a huge focus. You got to turn those trucks around fast and make sure you're not pissing people off and, and, um, and uh, getting on the wrong side of people. Um, and you've got to make sure that, uh, and, you've, and so that focus has shifted a little bit. So um, we were, you know, and, and it was a tough transition for the R360 team that was very oil field focused, very entrepreneurial, very fast moving to get bought by Waste Connections, which mm -hmm. was you know, much more conservative and rightly so, much mm -hmm. more conservative organization. And I will say they're probably the most aggressive growth company in the garbage sector. Um, so... But you know, they were compared to us. I mean, they were, it, it felt like they were paying us to, to, you know, to hold the carpet down in our offices. Um, and so <laughs> it just wasn't, it wasn't the right fit. Um, That's pretty funny. But um, I also like the phrase, the most aggressive company in garbage. Right. That is, that's something I, I hadn't heard. I like it. But um, you know, so I was looking, I, when I got out of there, I, I was looking for a partner that really knew the oil patch well. And really understood, because I knew I want. I mean, I'm I'm an oil field guy through and through through. So I I wanted to make sure that I could find a partner that understood the cyclicality of the business. And so I spent, you know, I, um, actually it was Sean Gee that introduced me to Tuan Tran, who was yeah. a partner, or he was a principal at Intervale at the time, and eventually became a partner. Um, and you know, he talked to me about their their investing track record. I spent a lot of time talking with them. I talked to a couple other firms. I mean, this was sort of lucky at that time that there was more capital chasing the industry back then than there were managers. And so I had the opportunity to speak to a lot of folks, but I really liked their track record of backing businesses, even through downturns. I mean, I looked at, you know, some of the work they did, um, uh, you know, through the 2008, 2009 downturn with other companies and how they took that as an opportunity to play offense and consolidate the market and do acquisitions at a time when the market was depressed and how it paid huge dividends for them on the back end. I mean, a generalist, you know, a normal generalist uh, investor would sort of run and hide mm -hmm. uh, or, or just say batten down the hatches um, and, and not play any offense. But the Intervale guys really understood the cyclicality and understood how to make money in a downturn. Um, and so that was a huge piece of it. The other part was there was just a good culture there. Yeah. They were young guys, they were smart, they were hard charging. The only downside was that they were based in Cambridge, Massachusetts of all places. Um, but I tell you what, if you have the, you know, if you can, if you can you know, be an oil field guy and go to a cocktail party in Cambridge, Massachusetts and still survive on the other side of that, I figure you got to be pretty tough. 
Yeah. So they eventually moved down to Houston. And, yeah, and, uh, that's they they they've done well. Yeah, you know. they're they're great. We're great guys to work. I've with. been amazed at how what Charles has been able to do and and the money he's able to continue to raise and yeah. And isn't uh, Troy's involved uh, with uh, with Aura Partners? Yeah. 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 So well, you know, I, um, I like to take credit for this, and I'm still waiting for my fee. But yeah, um, <laughs> I uh, I you know Troy brought Troy onto our board um, as an independent director at Milestone, and he got to know Charles Charrington, who was the head of Intervale back then. Um, through our board, and then um, you know Troy and Charles eventually. You know Troy was the CEO at Total Safety, right? So he after he left Total, um, he and Charles partnered up and create and created um, what's now called Ara Partners, which is an industrial decarbonization fund that's affiliated with Intervale Capital and a couple of other funds that kind of invest in middle market deals across the energy sector writ large. Yeah. So they've created a really you know, some really neat um, uh, uh, firms and investment theses, and they've done a lot of good stuff. Did you, did you say Charrington? Is that Charrington? Charrington. Yeah. Excuse yeah. me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's interesting. Yeah, they're 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 good guys, and and um, always uh, always creative, and and kind of um, you know, coming up with with uh, with good new stuff. And I tell you, you know, um, both Charles and, and Troy are really good at figuring out how to make money. Well, okay, so we know that 2020 is going to last for five more years, right? Uh, and but it will really only feel like a year, yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's like a do- it's like dog year, <laughs> yeah. So um, we have that. Let's let's go to something that would put me in a good mood on this whole deal. What do you what do you spend your time focusing on on a day to day basis? Like, what does a typical day and week look like for you? And how do you keep your head zoned in, in, in on what you need to do? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, it's a, um, uh, it's a good question. And so, you know, my, my day is usually filled with zoom and, you know, with zoom calls and, um, between zoom WebEx and, and, and Microsoft teams, I feel like I'm always on camera at the house. Uh, we are generally working from home right now. Um, and I probably go into the office maybe twice a week. Your brand new office. Yeah. And I was telling Josh the story. So, you know, before all this started, we just signed a new office lease and we were about 30 people in the corporate office thinking we were going to go to 40 when we needed room to expand beyond that. Right. And so I'd signed this new lease and, uh, and just, um, you know, and couldn't get out of it at that time. So we just like on Monday, the space got the space delivered. It's the first time we've had our own office space built out. It's really nice. I mean, not nice by like, um, you know, in, you know, Lawyer standards, but really, but a, but a nice <laughs> office standards. for a nice office for an oil field company. It's the first one we've ever had like built for us, and so we're really excited about yeah. it. Um, and then now we've got this you know great new office space that just delivered on Monday, and like there's three people there yeah, because yeah. everybody's working. We're turning money. it into a Regis, so <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've already had some some buddies call me up. It's like, can I just rent a little just, you know, one office from you? Yeah. you know? it, it, yes, yes, yeah. you can. Come yeah. on over. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, as long as there's cash involved, no problem. <laughs> if I get to see a human from time to time, that'd be great. Um, it yeah. is nice to be around people, right? Yeah. You know, the joke of a busy person is, and I don't know if you make this joke, but I, I tend to make it is, you know, it's that I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be around it. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm sick of people, right? I'm sick of, you, you can say that when you're busy in the airport and you're right. But really I've realized I actually like people a lot yeah. <laughs> and, and it was really hard to be away. I'll tell you, who I don't want to be is around my family. I, I like people that aren't my kids screaming at me. It was nice to, be able to get away to come to the office and. Uh, and just You've been coming to the office a lot lately. I've noticed that. I spent to- one week at home during the, the, and just didn't go anywhere. And by Friday, my wife, Christy was like, uh, there's nobody at your office. Right. I said, yeah. She said, well, just, 
you can operate there. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. It's, <laughs> I've been coming up since then. So yeah. it's been fun though. I mean, we've had uh, Laura Schillings. You know, she's got her gig. She rotates in and out. Yeah. And Scott Millerin's been rotating Scott. in and out. Daniel Energy Partners, John Daniel. Yeah, and, he uh, operates right out of here. Oh, is he, is he in your office here? Okay, that's Austin great. Austin with us over here, and and uh, we've got a bunch of different people coming in and out, so it's been kind of Because we did, we have. Ah, that's so good to keep that activity going. I it, miss that hubbub so honestly, much. Honestly, we did it strictly for energy. I mean, for like human energy. I came yeah. and, and it was just sad. Like we have a nice office too, and it's, you know, 30 desks, I think is what we have total. And I was the only one here for a week, and I said, this is this yeah. isn't good for the company. It's not well, good for me. Yeah, I, I would much rather be working from my house than being the only guy in the office because that is just that is just quiet I, and eerie. And I talked just to one of so my friends weird. that he's it's public company downtown, and he said, Josh, he said we have two floors downtown. And he goes, there's three people total max yep. Yep. in there, and he says I was walking around in shorts and socks the other day. Yeah, and he goes, and I thought to myself, fine, who cares? No one's no one's here, and you just and this is a public company. He's walking around in shorts and socks because nobody is in the office. It is, it is a crazy, crazy uh, time right now. It really is. And, you know, I think we were, I was just talking with our head of human resources today about, hey, let's, we need to figure out how to encourage people to start coming in a little bit more. Because I think we've got, you know, people have two different mindsets, right? There's, there's people that are really anxious and, and, um, and nervous about, you know, COVID and, and all the things that go along with it. And, and some rightfully so, you know, that have health conditions and other things that they really got to worry about. Um, and then, you know, there's a bunch of people in the middle. And then of course there are the people that are just dying, uh, to, for some human interaction. Yeah. Like we got to get people yeah. back in. How um, has productivity been for you? I mean, have you noticed a dip with the yeah, remote? We had a dip early kind of for when we first started working from home and then, um, kind of that first quarantine period when we sort of had to rush into it. The good thing, you know, we had had a little bit of a dry run during Hur hurricane Harvey because our office was impacted. Mm. And so we had to be home for a couple of weeks. We got everybody kind of set up so everybody could working from home down to the, you know, the, all the billing clerks, everybody could work from home. So um, technically we were okay, but productivity did dip. Um, and then we brought people back and then case counts went up again. And so we're like, okay, when we start sending people home again and now they're, you know, it, it's, it, everything's cranking pretty well. Yeah. Um, but again, it's like, um, you know, the, the work that you've had to do over the last couple of months hasn't been all that creative. It's just been, you know, get stuff done. We know what we have to do to cut costs. It's grim work, and we, we just get it done. I think the way, what you lack, though, in kind of the working from home and being separated, you, you lack that creativity yes. and that energy and that collaboration. Um, and when you really think about growing and developing a business long-term, you need that. Um, so, you know, keep, keeping everybody apart for, um, you know, is – you know, it actually kind of helps you stay sane when all the work is grim because mm -hmm. then you can say, okay, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go do the work I need to do. And, and then I'm going to go play with my dogs and, you know, and, and hang out with my kids. And I have teenagers. So to the extent they'll allow me to hang out with them, <laughs> I try to, yeah. um, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, but, but now we're kind of getting back to a, a phase of how do we really play offense in this environment? How do we really develop and how do we really grow? You need to have people you need to have people talking to yeah. each other and kind of being, there's no, there's really no substitute at the end of the day to, from being face to face. You know, I like, I like hearing you say that. I mean, I, I have nothing to say on that, David, other than just, I, I can appreciate the fact that you're like, how do we go on the, that's a very, I like aggressive comments like that. I mean, it just feels like that's what we need to do is just, I, I hate playing defense. I'm not very good at it. Yeah. It's much better just to go. So I, I commend you for saying, how do we yeah. turn this back well, there's on? There's a lot of wood to chop. 
in this in the industry, right? Yeah. I mean, if you think about um, in the last downturn, um, there was a lot of money that would come in and kind of keep companies afloat in 2015 and 16. A lot of private equity. Wall Street was throw, continuing to throw money at the sector um, and kept a lot of companies alive. Consolidation was really needed in 2015 and 2016 when the when the market shrank on us, and it didn't really happen because, in part, because there was a lot of capital coming in. Well, now you know the industry was already out of favor um, before any of this started, as you know, from a capital perspective, right? Private equity is kind of um, holding back, and, and Wall Street, gosh, they you know really trying to stay away from anything that that you know, with with fossil fuels attached. Um, and so you know that, that's going to, I think, it should require that consolidation and force it to happen, whereas it really didn't happen in 2015 and 16. So I think that consolidation needs to happen now not going to happen by itself. So you got to, we, we got to figure out how to adjust that. We got to, we got to figure out how to get the industry together. Yeah, I, I agree. I think a lot of that though was fueled by a little bit of greed and a, and a lot of lacking uh, discipline and rigor around yeah. the business. And because there were a lot of really good businesses that, you know, had good people working for them. And I would say, you know, there's always opportunity for continuous improvement, decent assets, but I think um, uh, it'll be interesting to see. And I'm, I'm anxious to see how ESG pushes yeah. that uh, rigor and discipline into these businesses to see who ultimately can get with it and survive Yep. versus those who, you know, can't get on the program and, and, uh, and will be challenged. Yeah. One thing we like to share with people or a couple of things Something interesting fact about our, our guest, which I think is, I'd like you to comment on, which I didn't know about you, uh, is one, your passion for the, for the Houston Symphony, but also that you're a singer. Yeah. So tell us about that. Well, so that, that's a, a, a will, will now be a very poorly kept secret in the oil field that I'm, a, <laughs> that I'm literally a choir boy. Um, but no, I, I've, I've been, um, you know, so I've been a singer my whole life. Um, and, uh, you know, if I could have double majored in college in chemical engineering and music, I would have. That's actually one of the reasons I picked UT because it had such a great music program. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been a singer my whole life and um, a classical singer. Um, and so, you know, I sang with, um, you know, I sang, I sang the entire time I was at UT, sang a little bit with the Houston Symphony before I moved to New York, sang with the New York Philharmonic when I was there in the, in the choir. Uh -huh. Um, and then, um, and that's, that was when I was unemployed and had, had time to do such things. Um, and then after I moved back, um, started to sing with the symphony, but my, I had little, little kids that were demand, you know, had demanding all my time when I wasn't traveling for work. And so I kind of have you know, done it in fits and starts, but that's how I survived the 2015 and 16 downturn mentally was I got really involved with, um, both, um, both performing with the Houston symphony chorus. Um, and, um, and also kind of getting involved with the Houston symphony board. Um, so that kind of kept me sane in the last downturn. Um, oh. it's, it's, it's a good thing for me yeah, to like keep both sides of my brain engaged so I can kind of, it, it's a really good, what a neat, yeah, it's a good way for me to de-stress. Well, I've got a friend of mine, John Stevens. I haven't seen him in a while, but, uh, he is a, uh, professional opera singer yeah. and sings for the Houston opera. And, um, obviously there's, there's a difference, but he always hated it because, uh, I would always get him to, you know, break out in song. Usually, plied him with alcohol. 
<laughs> but I remember one time we ran into Billy Gibbons uh, from ZZ Top at, uh, I forget which, uh, it might have been Cyclone. It was Cyclone and I's in the Heights. Oh, cool. And uh, we were there to celebrate uh, a friend of ours' birthday. And I'm running back to the to the uh, bathroom, and Billy's in the back with a bunch of, you know, good-looking ladies and stuff. He's like, Drew, what are you doing here? My family knows Billy. <laughs> Of course they Friend do. of mine's birthday. Of course they and, do. Uh, of course they do. <laughs> and uh, he goes, well, it's her birthday. And I said, son of a gun. And, and John's walking behind me, and and uh, and we come out of the bathroom together. And I said, John, do you know it's her birthday? I said, Billy, I tell you what. John is a professional opera singer. I'm going <laughs> to get him to sing happy birthday to her for her birthday. And, and in exchange for you come sing happy birthday, our friend up front. That sounds fair. He said, no problem. Let me tell you what. John broke out into into to a happy birthday in Italian uh, uh, for, for this young lady there. And you could have heard a pin drop in the restaurant. <laughs> Everybody stood up and started clapping after that. You know, just Billy just getting a big kick out of that. And then he came up when they were leaving. We were still there at the front having, having margaritas. And he sang happy birthday to... Uh, to your buddy we were with, but uh, anyways, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna call you out. Well, maybe I might yeah. call you out. And get you to see something. <laughs> I'm just, honestly, I'm trying to look at this and go, Jonathan, is there anything special that has to be done with the microphone? I'm, we're not gonna put the pressure on unless you want to sing. Oh no, no, yeah. not, yeah. not, not no, fair I'll, enough. I'll pass today, fair so, enough. So, so one of the things we like <laughs> to close cool, out and really ask our, our guest is, you know, is there any any piece of advice that you would like to share that you find a value that you would have you would have you would have liked to have known or had somebody share with you 10, 20, 30 years ago, or even last week yeah. that, that you might share with our, our audience that uh, they might use for their benefit. I mean, look, I think, I think in, in, um, in life, it kind of, I've heard you guys ask this question for, uh, you know, to other guests. And, and so no, I was, no I was, I was terrified when I heard out, that. Yeah. I'm like, Oh man, they're going to ask me this and I'm not going to have anything to say. Um, but I think it really kind of boils down to three things in my mind. I mean, one is pick your people really well and then invest like hell in them, right? And that's whether that's you know, kind of whether that's in your personal life or the people that you work with. I've built my career not so much around the companies I've worked with, but, by, but around the people that I work with um, and kind of following those, those people from, you know, from, um, from opportunity to opportunity and really investing in those people is really important. Um, the second thing I think that is, and I know people talk about it a lot, but you know, finding meaning in what you do, find something, uh, find meaning in your career, and whether that is helping people, making the world a better place, or just because you're just so passionate about what you do, it can't at the end of the day just be about a paycheck or making money. Um, it's not a, a good recipe for happiness. So you have to find some meaning in what you do, and that's why one of the reasons I really like. Um, what we do at Milestone, because I really do feel like we're making the world a better place through through our existence. And the third thing that I think is just so important um, in um, managing a business in the oil field, but uh, extends far beyond that too, is just have faith in yourself and know that you can know that you can get through. You know that you can um, that you can tackle the challenges that come. I mean, you know, sometimes for some people that comes from their from their religion. They have faith in God. They have they derive that from their church. Other people derive that from just living through a lot of tough life experiences and getting that that experience. Um, but if you don't 
have passion for what you do and faith in yourself, everything is a lot harder. So you know, if you can find a way to, you know, to do those three things, and everything else just opens up. Excellent. You got good people, find meaning in what you do, and just have faith in yourself. Well, you're the first person that's admitted that uh, they heard that question and prepped for it. I, that, we usually like to <laughs> get that, them. That was a good response. Excellent answer. I mean, what I mean, were you, Josh lives that every day. I mean, he's wear wears pink shoelaces, green shoelaces, <laughs> blue shoelaces. I got them all. He's got faith in himself. Doesn't yeah, doesn't there's a lot of self confidence. Yeah, maybe pink too shoelaces. Much. Yeah, 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 pink's the yeah, power I color. It. Yeah. I love it. Period. Well, listen. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to promote? I mean, obviously, what's what is the website for uh, uh, Milestone? Yeah, so it's milestone-es.com. So uh, es for environmental services. Okay. Um, you know, we are. Um, uh, yeah, I think you know one of the other things that I wanted to talk about real quickly um, was um, you know when we talk about the environmental impact of our business um, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm skipping around a little bit. No, you're fine. Maybe for editing later, that might be okay. Um, but you know, one of the things that um, that really doesn't get talked about a lot in oil field waste management, um, and it kind of dovetails into what we were talking about earlier about ESG is the carbon footprint of different oil field waste management practices. I think when a lot of people think about ESG and they think about environmental and the uh, issues in the oil field and like, well, geez, we need to just throw out the E because, you know, they're never going to give us credit um, on the environmental side in the oil field. There's so much that the oil field can do and there's so much good stuff that we, and, and ways that we can be better yeah. in the oil patch. Um, you know, I, I talked about the process of land farming earlier. It's still allowed in some places, but when you land farm oily waste, you think about that, you're, you're spreading it out on the ground, you're exposing it to air, and you're exposing it to the sun, that those hydrocarbons are eventually going to volatilize. You know, the, the sun breaks down those hydrocarbon chains, and then they'll, they'll get short enough where they evaporate into the air, but they become a pretty potent greenhouse gas, more, more potent than just CO2 by itself. Um, whereas if you send that waste to to professional disposal. Really, any professional disposal is better than that from a carbon perspective. Because even if you're putting in a landfill, a milestone has, we have slurry injection um, at most of our locations, and we also have two oil field waste landfills. At least in an oil field waste landfill, that material is going to get covered up, and a lot of that carbon is going to get sequestered in the belly of that landfill. But in the, on the slurry injection side, the primary disposal method, we're taking these oily wastes, we're blending them together um, and we are processing them and then injecting them 7,000 feet down behind. You know, they're literally a mile of rock in between where we're, in, where we're putting the waste and usable groundwater, anything that interacts with the, the environment. But um, the, the material that we inject, it varies a lot depending on what we receive, kind of what the hydrocarbon content is. But on average, it's about 5% oil, what we inject. Um, and so if you think about that, I mean, the, um, if you start doing the math there, um, you know, Milestone actually has a carbon footprint that is profoundly negative, I mean, it, which is a, a good thing, right? So profoundly negative carbon footprint of, of hundred, between two, by our math, between two and 300,000 metric tons, sorry, let me say that one more time, um, between two and 300,000 tons per year of CO2 equivalent that we're effectively permanently sequestering in the ground. We but, have some... Yeah, these are the kind of stories... I didn't mean to cut you there, but I'm, I'm listening to that thinking. These are the kind of stories that I don't know these. I've been in the, I mean, I, those are numbers that I would love to hear. I've, I was just thinking, you know, I'm glad you're on this podcast 
And I hope that this gets some traction because some of these things they do, that does bother me. Yeah. And, and I hope that more often than not, we can make the changes to have the stuff disposed of properly and change regulation that needs to be changed. And, you know, and that, that means getting rid of the, the lower level guys that want to just, I don't want to say cheat because it's legal, but yeah. take it, take the shortcut. We need, I don't want that. You right. don't want that. We, the, the industry doesn't want that anymore. So no, I'm glad that uh, that's being said and, and you're bringing it to the forefront. Yeah. Particularly not when, not when there is a better way to do things. And I will say, and, and I think you probably agree with this too, Gabriel, that, that the industry over time, a large number of the players always will go to the better thing to do, mm-hmm. you know, as practices change, but you're always going to have your hanger. Yeah, hanger there's no doubt. But well, the, and I think it's, it's, getting, it's getting better. I mean, yeah. partially because consolidation's happening in the yeah. patch, right? So you've got, um, you've got a lot of the smaller players have been there. A lot of them are going out of business or they've already been bought up. Um, and so you've got larger players um, that are um, that are really in control now. So the super majors have a much different point of view, and they're going to be more conservative. And we work for all of those guys. We've spent a long time. It takes a long. It took us a long time to get in with that very last one. But we work for all the super majors out yeah. in the Permian Basin, and then even the you know some of the um, the larger independents. I mean, Parsley is very progressive when it comes to, and I you know applaud those guys for what they're what they're doing on the environmental side. You're seeing some of these larger independents really take this very seriously, um, but when you when when people talk about um, environmental issues in the energy patch, usually they're focused on a lot of times they're focused on the wrong things. I mean, we spent so much time uh, ten years ago, you know, talking about whether fracking was contaminating groundwater, and that wasn't really the issue ever, right? I mean, it was just you know fighting with the media about the about negative perceptions of fracking. Um, and now today you see um, energy companies focused on um, in the environmental issues they, they're most focused on are flaring, which is a really important thing to focus on. They're also focused on water management, and that's important. The water volumes are really high, and so managing that water appropriately is important. You don't hear a lot of folks talking about how they manage their waste. And we as an industry, and talking about all the oil field, in the oil field waste industry, have been pretty quiet about it. Now we don't, you know, we don't want to get on the wrong side of our customers by, um, we don't want to get put in the penalty box because, you know, we, um, you know, said a, an operator was doing the wrong thing. So I'm never going to try to you know, take one of our customers and throw them under the bus. Um, but it is important how you manage these wastes, and you've got much more environmental risk from how you manage that waste on the surface than anything that's ever going to happen 10,000 10, feet below the Earth's surface. So, um, and the, and and now that, you know, carbon emissions are absolutely the top of the list from an environmental perspective, making sure they're calculating the carbon footprint of different disposal options is something that hasn't really been done before. I mean, I've been in this industry for 15 years and we only started doing that math six months ago. So, um, and now it's, we're trying to make sure that we get to the right people within our customers that care about what those numbers are. Yeah. It's not the drilling superintendent that cares. It's somebody up at, at headquarters, um, and uh, you know, and and making sure that that um, that that gets attention. All right. Well, hopefully we can get your involvement on the Energy ESG Council, particularly your environmental section, and yeah. and and talk about that. So, Gabriel, I really appreciate yeah. you coming on. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This it's has been great. a lot of fun. Now we appreciate it. And fun. you're gonna you'll come back and. Uh, if there's something that we need to know about, bring it to our attention. Sure. And, uh, and we'll try to get as much exposure for it as possible, including your 
friend from Nebraska that is going to get us one more download or one download from you Nebraska. You just need one. Yeah. Just All need you one. need is one. Well, listen, David, sure do you have anything else for us today, buddy? No, I'm just, uh, we, we've done uh, three podcasts today, which is awesome. We got a couple <laughs> more tomorrow. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's Colorado for me. Yeah, for you. Got to rub that Nice. In. Yeah. Going to Lake City, I'm pretty pumped about it, actually. Yeah. So. This is the time of year to get to the mountains, man. Exactly. I mean, it is 100 degrees and, exactly. and 100% humidity in Houston. It's uh, yes. It's time to run for the hills for a, for a couple months. Anyway. I can't wait. Well, listen, uh, Gabriel, Mr. Rio, we appreciate your time. Yeah. Coast really nice Air. meeting you. David D. Road, thank you for your time. Yeah, buddy. Jonathan, per the usual, you're the Marathon man. day, thank you, Jonathan. Jonathan. Thank you. Jonathan, Mr. <laughs> Aggie back there. Uh, well, thank you for listening to the Oilfield 360 podcast in uh, the Fletcher Azul Tequila podcast studio. <laughs> and uh, it is a pleasure. Thank you all. We are Find us on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, we're on all social media at Oilfield 360. And a uh, new website is actually almost complete. I think it might even be up today, David. It might put you in a good mood. But uh, Oilfield360.com. So very nice. Good luck to everyone. Good luck to all you listening out there. Keep your head up. Have a great day. All right. Thanks. This episode of the Oilfield 360 podcast was brought to you by the following companies. EIV Capital, a growth equity-focused private equity firm, which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit eivcapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Merit Advisors, crafting holistic tax solutions to improve your cash flow and add profit back to your bottom line. When it comes to state and local taxes, Merit is the expert in the oil and gas industry. Visit MeritAdvisor.com. World Oil. For more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit worldoil.com slash subscribe. Thank you to our sponsors, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, SimmonsPSC.com, Lockton Global Energy and Marine, Lockton.com, Tomahawk Safety, TomahawkSafety.com, Prang & Associates, Prang.com, Daniel Energy Partners, DanielEP.com, EIV Capital, EIVCapital.com, Galtway Marketing, GaltwayMarketing.com, Range Valuation Services, RangeValuationServices.com, Merit Advisors, MeritAdvisor.com, World Oil, WorldOil.com, Fletcha Azul Tequila, FletchaAzulTequila.com. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, Please follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or at oilfield360.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Company, member SIPC and FINRA, and Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC-registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler and & Company, and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.